Welcome to another episode of Season 3 of the Panjway Podcast. As usual, you can find our episodes on YouTube, Facebook, and your favorite podcast platform, whether that's Spotify or Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, you pick it, we're there. If you want to support the podcast financially, we've set up a few ways for you to do so this season. You can become a patron by hopping over to patreon.com slash the Panjway Podcast and sign up for a small monthly donation. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can find us on Venmo at the Panjway Podcast. And last but not least, we've got a small selection of merchandise in our store. So if you head over to thepanjoypodcast.com and click on the store tab, you'll see stickers and other merchandise and who knows what might come down the pipeline. All that I can hope is you take me with you when you go. I guess I should have known I can't leave with you when you go. You know, people can use maps and imagery and stuff and they can cheat and they can be like, oh, I want to go to this land before they, it even opens. And then everybody obviously goes for the most ideal ones. It's just like it's like it's too. There's no point anymore in homesteading because you would just list the lot for sale and you can buy it. Yeah. Um, and it avoids kind of the potential for Alaska Wild West violence in the middle of the, the bush. You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the reason is I don't do it, but I, I suppose it's probably just because it's just not convenient. You but, get more money the other way. And you get more money the other way, yeah. Uh, you, know, somebody, you can charge a price based on the value of the land instead of just a you know, one-price homesteading permit. So if there's a lakeside property with a mountain view, you can charge more than for like the acre surrounded by sticks on four sides with no access. Right. But homesteading, they'd be the same price. The intricacies of Alaskan economics aside. <laughs> yeah. uh, Curtis, why don't you introduce our illustrious guest here this evening? Yeah, sure. So we're uh, we're sitting here with Corey Hatt. Corey Hatt is the owner-founder of Mad Hatter Industries. Uh, and of course, on here on the Panjway podcast, he is a veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces in Panjway. Um Corey has two deployments to to Panjway um, in 2006 and I think 2008. Is that correct? Uh, 2009 was a second. 2009. Tour, 309. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so he's here to talk about his little bit of his time in Panjway, uh, Op Medusa, and then what it was like to come back, you know, three years later and, and see what it was like. So Corey, we appreciate you appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. It's uh, we were on as a guest panelist uh, with a few others before, but uh, now officially on the podcast. It's official, uh, yeah, official, officially official. It's a real episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, and kind of the way we uh, we kind of start these things off, we kind of give you a chance to talk a little bit about your background, why you joined the military, why you chose. Um, to unfortunately become a military policeman, we won't hold it against you uh, too hard. Um, and then you know, kind of the, the the road that brought you to to Medusa in two thousand six, and so on. 
Yeah, so uh, while becoming a field MP, originally right out of high school, I was always influenced in uh, joining the Army. My father had been a retired captain in the forces, so there was an influence in the military before I had joined, and there's always uh, pressure to go right force, but I, I just ended up going into college and then doing the part-time thing through the reserves as a vehicle technician originally, and I just wanted to get something a little bit more uh, infantry-like. So they had a field MP platoon, which I joined after my basic, and uh, about right after college, right into university, my first semester, I ran out of money immediately. There was an opportunity to go to Afghanistan, so I volunteered as the only one in my platoon to go, and then did the six-month workup deployment, which led me to uh, work with uh, one RCR. So they deployed in 306, with the uh, Americans, we joined you out in, in Kandahar. So it was originally uh, Op Athena, went to Op Archer. I think it transferred over. So there was a slight change in uh, how we ran things internationally. But that, that moved into two big operations, which uh, I was indirectly a part of. So we assisted with Op Medusa, basically just uh, in the background, watching all the bombs get dropped out in Panjway and watching the uh, Afghan army come in with the uh, all the assets were there for basically just transferring uh, detainees whenever they're they were caught there wasn't too many in 306 there's like no prisoners almost there's a couple incidents where we had like an interpreter that we took uh, aboard because there had been some suspicions that he'd been relaying information hmm. and uh, right away my first week on ground, we'd had uh, a huge uh, attack right at the front gate. So we lost, I remember we had a lab that got hit by an IED or a suicide uh, SVB ID. And that's when Corporal Braun passed away. We had a large triage set up and the interpreter was uh, thought to have had a part in that. So we ended up detaining them and transferring them. There's a few incidences just throughout the tour there wasn't a lot of like information I had exactly of the areas that we were going being corporal, you know, up in the turret of uh, a Jeep. I didn't pay too much attention to a lot of details. So just kind of looking at the area of where we'd go. Panjway was pretty like unmistakable because there was just fields and fields of marijuana as you'd go through and <laughs> right. you'd smell it and see it. Mm-hmm. And then the Argandab river, you'd know you're getting close as you're going up across and then down over the mountains. We did a lot of, uh, of convoy operations all over the area, but Panjway is unmistakable. You know, areas of concern from the int briefs you'd get in the morning before you'd go. Hmm. And just uh, coming out of patrol base Wilson, back then it was basically just a a bunch of tents around some HESCO barriers. And then when I went back to visit in the second tour, it was built up, like like everything was built up. It was insane to see the differences and how uh, prosperous the whole area of Kandahar had become. You would on our patrols, you know, we're with the 82nd out of the Argandab. We'd have uh, Americans picking up like a case of Red Bull thrown over their shoulders. Some would grab watermelons. <laughs> so yeah. it was, uh, you know, it was a lot of interaction with the population, but you're always watching everyone six as a C9 gunner, you know, as always humping this a lot of, a lot of stuff you have your spare barrel your backpack full of uh spare box ammo on top of what's belted around you so i didn't get any uh time to pick anything up at the markets but 
<laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of different experiences just kind of blended into the other. And, you know, being a field MP, we were always embedded with the infantry when we weren't doing our own thing. So we'd often be just assisted with uh, checking up on uh, auxiliary police units, Afghan police substations, going all over the area. Sometimes we'd even just go into the city and climb into like these different apartment blocks looking into these uh, Afghan police commander substations. Mm -hmm. so, so the the first, let's, let's go to the first deployment first. Um, so that was, first. You, you flew, you did a train up. Um, did you know that the train up was for, for Kandahar and Panjway? Did they give you kind of any kind of advance notice what you were in specific, what you were going to be doing before you went? Not exactly. So we were, we didn't exactly know where we were going or what was going to happen other than that we were there to assist with close support. So we had a general support duty platoon that would be in Kandahar airfield handling the garrison side of things. So when we'd have detainees, they'd basically right. just sit there and supervise them. And we'd be going out in the field, attaching with the battalion, going out uh, with different units and platoons and going out with them. So when we first got on ground, we spent maybe four days just reintegrating, doing test firing your weapons, and then just getting acclimated. And then we went out to Camp Nathan Smith, which is in Kandahar City. Yes. And from yeah. there, we get punched out. So for Op Medusa, we're out in Panjway just for that op. And then Op Baztuka, we're out for that one as well. And the whole operation, we'd get attached as assets, different groups of MPs, three or four MPs or Jeep teams would go and attach in to different platoons. So if they did have assets that we needed to be transferred, we do that as well as uh, sensitive site explo exploitation. So if somebody was killed, we go ahead and uh, collect the intelligence, take some photos and then pass it up. And this was basically your, you knew, you knew that this was going to be your mission set before you got to Pan to, to Kandahar. And, yeah, you knew, we, and you knew it was Kandahar that you were going to. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were prepared. We knew we were going to Kandahar. Uh, the only people that were going to Kabul from the military police element uh, would have been close protection operators. Right. And uh, it was the first uh, close protection team that had ever deployed on the tour that we were joining on to. So they'd actually lost a few members. So we knew things were going to get pretty hot when there's two members that got killed. And that was pretty close to us because a lot of people knew those members. Right. And uh, we were basically prepared for the possibility, the real possibility that uh, someone was going to die from our platoon. And uh, we lost 23 people through the whole tour. So that was uh, something we dealt with, a lot of ramp ceremonies. We we're also the QRF because we were based out of the city. A lot of quick reaction uh, for all the attacks that happened. It wouldn't be just... Canadian attacks, but any American or British or coalition forces, we'd spool up and go and respond and uh, secure the perimeter and call in uh, helicopters for medevac. So when when uh, so obviously the 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 three hundred six tour, um, you know the the big push there was Medusa. How how quick from when you got to Kandahar to when that was kicking off? I mean, was it were there in the planning stages already when you got there or? It was all pretty hush-hush, but it was basically rumored to be the biggest operation since Korea. So we knew yes. something big was coming. And then we just got the orders to move into position and stage out of areas. And at night, we'd basically just take off and we'd be stuck out in the mountains for a couple of days. 
uh, up on the hills looking to see uh, like if we were going to move in or not. And a lot of it was just a lot of waiting around while the infantry went in after the, uh, you know, all the air assets, the artillery sure. had soaked up the area. They sent in the Afghan uh, army with the infantry beside them. And then when the uh, white school, when they went to go yes. take that and right. all that ensued and then Charles company becoming almost ineffective from the friendly fire incident and the other attacks that had happened, uh, things just kind of got, uh, you know, pretty uh, broken up. So a lot of us had just basically sat around and waited for things to happen. In, and where from, were you guys, where were you positioned um, specifically? I was basically just running supplies back and forth. So we had uh, assets positioned on the hill waiting to go with uh, one RCR. Is that Massimgar? Yeah, the, yeah okay. exactly. So we were moving stuff in, we were escorting we were basically nonstop on the road going from uh, Camp Nathan Smith to the JCCC, moving supplies into Massimgar or Patrol Base Wilson. It was just constant uh, back and forth. Where was Wilson in relation to Massimgar in that area? Because I'm it's north, right? It's in, it's on the it's off of Highway One. Is that correct? Yeah, it was definitely off Highway One. Okay. Yeah, it yeah, doesn't so, jog my memory. We, we must have never got no, because it's 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 what's now Zari. So uh, okay. Yeah. So okay. it's it's not. This was when Panjway and Zari were one district, one and the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you you've seen you've probably seen Wilson from the top of Sperwangar. So if you look to the north from Sperwangar, um, you could see a couple bases like right when the green zone ended in Zari and when the mountain started. Mm-hmm. And there was uh, there was Pasab was one of them you could see. It was just past the green zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Wilson was a little bit further off to the right. And you could sometimes see, like, if you were up there, you could see, like, helicopters landing and stuff like that. Because okay. you could just see the big dust. But it was it was quite far, you know, probably yeah. 20, 30 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. From Sperwangar. Right. A little yeah. bit closer to, to Massimgar. To Massimgar and the Argandab, obviously. Right. Yeah. Right. So okay. the route that you guys would take would be... Kandahar up Route One to to Wilson, or the or Route One up to ha, what's now Hyena to Massamgar? Are those the yeah, two? Yeah, so we'd mostly follow uh, Highway One. We'd go and take the roads down, and we'd split off depending on, I guess, the threats of what were happening during the sure. day. Sometimes we'd always try and switch it up or go from a different area, but mm. pretty much always taking the same highway because that was the main. There's area there's really no other choices at that through. time. Yeah, I mean they. Yeah. The extra routes hadn't been built up. Nothing was paved. I mean, there was no back road to to Panjway at the time, other than the Registan. Um, you know, now you know there's all kinds of different ways to get there, so you can be a yeah. little more predictable. But um, um, yeah. uh, so your your primary mission was like detaining ops and moving people around and stuff like that. So you know, kind we of got lucky. We had quite a few different tasks. So yeah, the prime role was with detention operations, mm-hmm. but uh, to liaise and mentor the Afghan police. Mm-hmm. We also, because it was such a small group uh, that we had, then we'd taken over such a large AO. We were also responsible for uh, convoy security, escorting uh, mm-hmm. a lot of materials going through quick reaction for any attacks in the city. We'd also do uh, camp security at a Camp Nathan Smith. Mm-hmm. And then we'd also spend some time splitting up some of our assets and sending them out to FOB Scorpion. So there's a little uh, group of police officers that were employed through Dynacor 
where he trained uh, Afghan auxiliary police. And some of you mm-hmm. might recognize Dynacor back in the day, the precursor to Blackwater before they started sending contractors over Dynacor and KBR and Halliburton had all their assets. Mm-hmm. And uh, we trained, I personally did two classes of 50 auxiliary police. And he'd spent about two, three weeks there just indoctrinating him, ironically enough, to their own Afghan constitution. <laughs> I'd be the white guy teaching them through an interpreter. And I just have all this material that I go through with Dynacore. But that was kind of like a vacation because it would take you off the, uh, what our day-to-day operations were, was generally every day we'd be going outside the wire, either escorting materials to the fobs or to the front and or we'd be just uh doing our own visits to the police substations on our own or being attached out for the two ops that we supported so so when you guys were uh sorry so when you guys were snatching up or you guys were like transporting detainees like uh how involved were the afghan police that you were training or was this like a totally different mission set so there was a uh there's an afghan like basically like the CIA, I think they called them the N- NDS. 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 Yeah. We'd transfer them to them. And uh, back did, in the day... So when the, did the NDS detain them or did they detain them? <laughs> or did they yeah, re- well, re- send them back out the back door? <laughs> it was a rolling joke that uh, yeah. they didn't make it past the front gates. They basically just shoot them in the back of the head and mm-hmm. move them and That out. was common practice in 2012 yeah. too, so I'm glad Some to see that. Justice. That, that didn't change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We weren't aware of that until afterwards, but yeah. uh, it became pretty common knowledge that that's what was being hap- what was happening. So then, then our detention facilities started filling up because of the time and transfer to right. release and process them. Everything was all pretty new back in '06. Things really started to heat up. So there was always yeah. questions of where these detainees were going, depending on intelligence right. values. Would they go to the Americans? Would they go? through to the Canadians, but uh, depending on the Canadians how... didn't have their own detention facility, did they? They they just dropped them off either to like the U.S. or the We the were Afghans starting to. Or... We had uh, oh, okay. some sea okay. cans basically that we're using with some people sitting across, on top of it, and then it was just all fenced off. And then by the time I spent the first four months of my second tour in Kandahar Airfield, the detention facility had completely been built up. It sure, was incredible. Yeah, really, like it was yeah. just yeah. sophisticated and uh, we had a lot of assets there. But um, yeah, it was everything was pretty new. Like they had the uh, pond in the center of Kandahar Airfield in 06 that everyone could smell. And then by 2010, everything was completely built up. There was all of these, there's uh, hard rock on the boardwalk. They had a shawarma place. It was insane. Yeah. Tim Hortons. <laughs> Tim Hortons, yeah, you can't Tim go Hort- without your Tim Hortons. I mean, Hortons. there's uh, so, have you seen the rise in the memes of the collapse of Afghanistan? I this ode it. to the Tim Hortons on Kandahar Airfield being shut down. Yep. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. so good. There's one that's like it's a whole bunch of like dominoes. Like one's a really small one, then there's a really really like ten foot tall one, and the little one he's like knocking over is it's like Tim Hortons closes on calf in 2010. Big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and then the big one is the fall of Afghanistan. That's what happened. It was the catalyst. Yeah, Timmy uh, Hose. Is is the donuts and coffee as good as they claim it is, though? Well, it's just like a taste of home, right? Just like the Americans sure, going yeah. to the. I don't know why there are so many people love Burger King when you get the same thing of the defects, but it was just like <laughs> you know a piece of home. It made you feel like normal again. It was something sure. to look forward to. But every time we got in there, we try and do a quick stop there, and we'd be all dusty and yeah. have a C nine strapped to the side of me. It just looked 
get, get the dirty eye there, from yeah. some. Yeah, father, was there a boardwalk yeah. in 2006? Yeah, yeah, there was. And there's wow. a lot of, uh, what is it? They play a lot of ball hockey back in the day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, 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 in the, uh, the famous hockey rink in the middle of the, yeah. of the boardwalk. It was still I mean, there in 2017. It just wasn't being used as a hockey rink. <laughs> right. I mean, it had been a lot more built up. It was night and day difference between the two tours. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I had the opportunity to do some private security in between. And uh, it was just, just like the experience that I had going from the first tour, which is very aggressive, to the second one. We were still doing a lot of aggressive things, but it felt like uh, the tempo would change a lot. It wasn't... Uh, really? You yeah. couldn't just shoot and like, but basically the first tour, there was a lot of uh, escalations happening and then things changed quite a bit. There's a lot of rules where you'd have to let vehicles into your convoy and all these crazy uh, I remember that. that. Just Yeah, we, well, because there was a time, uh, you know, obviously uh, you're talking Iraq, like 2005 to 2008, where if a vehicle tried to get in your convoy, you like them. you put that vehicle in the ditch. Oh, yeah. yeah. Either like, either with your vehicle dunk. or with your 50 cal. Yeah. Um, you know, and then it, it was weird to me, you know, in 2012 to be driving and you're like these little, we like a little sedan. I was like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. that could be a bomb. Felt really be, uncomfortable. Felt yeah, very yeah. uncomfortable. So while we yeah. couldn't actually hit them, uh, we made sure it was not in their best interest to snake into our convoy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we we definitely ended up causing quite a few accidents. Fender Benders. Yeah, yeah well, the old <laughs> game of donkey donkey cart smash was uh, something well, yeah, more it's, if it's if it's eight eight hundred pound you know Suzuki Daewoo or whatever versus a thirty eight thousand pound MATV like we win every time like uh, yeah and that's that's a big car and you know, most of them are just motorcycles um God knows Wait. how many motorcycle crashes we caused yeah yeah no, there's uh, a lot of craziness in uh, a lot of a lot of like times where it was just. You just go and up and down, running the roads, everything seemed fine. Then half an hour later behind you, there'd be a convoy that was hit or somebody would uh, go yeah. over. It was always in the same spot too, near the arches where the SVB IDs always seemed to hit. And then mm-hmm. all the IDs, we'd have a sweep done in the morning from this guy called CIA Jack. He had a team of guys that would go and sweep the roads. But uh, was that So that was a common threat in, in 06, like the, oh, yeah. the, the vehicle IDs? Wow. That was actually probably the biggest threat because when we'd get engaged, they weren't. It was uh, inaccurate fire. Like other sure. than some mortars coming into Patrol Base Wilson, those are pretty I mean, it's, accurate. But it's a bunch of teenagers with Chinese-made AK-47s. With, yeah, or with Czech, yeah, well, exactly. Like. <laughs> <laughs> then you know, like when you're getting professional, like accurate yes. fire coming yep. in from Chechens. Very different. Yep. So, mm-hmm. but, um, uh, yeah, it was a trip. So that that V that VBID threat in 06, was that did that really direct like how you drove through the city or how you made some of those runs into Kandahar or into uh, Panjway? Oh yeah, um, and, we were and did aggressive. that did that continue into Panjway or was that mostly just in the city? It would fall all the way through. Like in the city, people would pretty much steer clear after a few uh, you know warning shots. Sure, we'd we'd have uh, so almost like a competition sometimes. See how many escalations would happen, but. Um, yeah, we didn't have too much problems in the city. We started half the tour in the G wagons, so you'd actually you could pop right out of the hatch and just right. point your rifle or your pistol at people and they'd move. Right. And then we moved to the RG thirty ones after these yes. G wagons kept yeah. getting blown up. 
and it was a remote weapon based system is a lot harder mm-hmm. to wave people away because they didn't seem to really see a they, threat right they just see a, a mounted gun it doesn't they don't really it doesn't really translate to a direct threat to them yeah until some shots start firing across the windows sure. or, which is ironic because you're way more likely to hit them with that thing than you are with you know pistol piston pointing out your yeah door. pistols nothing right it's just yeah like, yeah i mean but it's it's intimidating to see an actual person holding an actual gun pointing it directly at you and making eye contact like hey fucker like i'm talking yeah. to you well, the pistol was more effective because they, I guess, they viewed it as an officer weapon. So when you're pointing a pistol, it meant business. Okay, fair enough. That's that's the way we we're told. Anyways, it seemed to always work. Sure. If the rifle didn't work, the pistol would work. And there's always a combination when I was in the turret between having the C6 up on the shoulder, the uh, C8 right by my uh, side, and then I'd pull a pistol out every now and then. I just kept it close up on my rig. Um, so if the if the the, the, the SVBID um, or SVBID threat. It was mostly in the city. When you got out to the rural areas like Panjway, was there a substantial um, like pressure plate IED or um, you know vehicle targeting IED threat out there, or was it mostly small arms? Once you got out to the the sticks, we didn't get a lot of small arms. Like there'd be the occasional pot shot, but we just drive through it for the most of it. And then uh, sure. I think we were always worried about SVBIDs. Like okay. If we could see the vehicles coming, there was always a concern. But then once you got out and you're going through these dusty roads, as soon as you're off the pavement, you didn't have as much concern with the pavement having, a, you know, a command detonated ID because you could see at least the road in front of you if it was paved. There shouldn't be as much of a concern. Right. Never seemed to hit those. But uh, and at what point did it stop being paved? Because obviously in, in 12, it was paved all the way, you know, Spurwan to Massamgar, all of how Route Hyena was paved. But I know that wasn't the case in uh, 6 and 9. Yeah, well, there's like a lot of routes were basically just broken bits of street. And, and for the most part, once you left the city, everything was all kind of just gravel and, and then all just dirt, like wild turkey. Uh, we named all the uh, roots set of beers. I forget, like, exactly. You know, Red Dog was pretty fucking... Was there a like, Molson? Just, there's a Molson, yeah. There's right. a Foster's, because Foster's. Uh, Hyena became Foster. Foster's became Hyena, right? That's So, Route Hyena used to be Route Foster's. Yeah, for when, me, I mm. think I recall everything being just basically dirt. You know, mm. there'd be, like, small villages where you'd go through. But everything was just so, like... Uh, it looked like you're going back in time like a hundred years ago. Like you'd go sure. right out of the city and then all of a sudden you'd see people living out of caves, yet they'd have these brand new Toyota Corollas, satellite dishes, and like there's these sketchy bridges you drive the RG31s over that you're afraid of just falling into the aqueduct. They were just so narrow yeah. and crumbly. That was the first time I actually drove one to get tested and uh, we just basically had to drive it over this shitty small aqueduct that was the width of the tires, barely. And uh, there's a lot of sketchy uh, opportunities to get contacted and hit. Going up mountains, you'd see people watching you on, you know, walkie-talkies. There's always yeah. those uncomfortable feelings. And then mm-hmm. when you did get hit, it was just uh, moments of panic and chaos. So you're just driving through it or calling in a lot of air support. Right. Well, it's, it's funny, like, you know, the... Um, the discrepancy between like the modern architecture and the the ancient construction techniques and like 
you know, obviously the Pashto are very basic people, but at the same time, you know, they're mm-hmm. living in a mud hut talking on a cell phone. Like it's it's the only other place I've ever seen that's like that uh, is like Eastern Kentucky or like Appalachia, you know, where people will they'll live in like a ten thousand dollar piece of shit mobile home, but they'll have a seventy two inch flat screen, you know, or it's I don't know the they just they don't feel. Maybe there's just not the supply or the interest in modern construction, so they just continue to build mud huts. But like, they'll park a car outside of a mud hut. Like that that piece of structure would have been normal two thousand years ago. Like, it, there's nothing changed about the way that they build their houses. But now they have like solar panels and TVs, and it's just like yeah, they'll run wires in it. It's it's so crazy. Like, why not just build with, like, concrete, man? Come on. <laughs> it's 2022. I guess the building material is cheap, right? If the labor is cheap as yeah. well, you just pick up the mud around you and start exactly. laying the foundation. Money. Yeah. You can, why, why spend money on concrete when you can buy your Toyota? Right. You know? Well, and, it, you know, there's the – if you spend a lot of time driving around, I'm sure you've seen them. I saw them flying around, not because I never saw them on my infantry point. was the brick factories in Kandahar. These massive, massive factories where they basically make like mud bricks. Oh yeah, it's it's not not advanced construction techniques. Like, but it's a it's an advanced factory producing a prehistoric construction device, and it's it's so odd to me. It's like, why not use that factory to make concrete? (laughs) (laughs) Instead, they make mud bricks, and that's like the basis for all the buildings in Panjway. They're not they're not just built like here's some mud and slap it here. Like the buildings have a, like structure to them, mm-hmm. um, but they're finished with the mud. Uh, some of them, not all of them, but it's just, I don't know. It's just weird. Like that they have the brick factories to make like, an, I don't know, just wild. Yeah. We toured some really opulent places as well. And uh, it was just random how you just pop out and out of nowhere, there'd be this compound that was made like very, obviously with a lot of money that was put in but though all the windows would be blown out from a blast that was recent sure, or right. you know maybe that was a consideration they put in as well with just these thick great pot walls you know not even like a tank could knock it over sometimes you need to get the chronology right in the right spot to right open a hole in but uh and you're I mean, probably very much onto something for a society that has been in constant war since 1970s <laughs> they know what they're like, doing they know what they're doing they're like yeah, well know you know, this is easier like to fix and yeah. yeah build my house like a bunker and you know who cares that the americans are in a gunfight two acres away like i'm fine mm-hmm. stay away from the windows guys like we did we hit a couple compounds and searching through them there's some really interesting uh points that i figured out from the architecture just like they'd have like cellars where they'd go down and like one i remember just searching by myself in this one room just full of potatoes and the other one full of onions but it was so deep down there's nothing that could have hit that thing or flattened it it was just so yeah. wide and thick like the way they built things and all these little side rooms i i can see why they've done it that way and it's probably just something that started out you know probably 100 years ago that they just keep adding to with uh, additional family members well, I, that's actually a really good observation, and it's something I noticed from the air. Is like when you look at these buildings and these compounds, you can always tell that where it started. Like even a building, you can tell, okay, that's the original building, and then they added that. Oh, and then they added the wall. And once they added the wall, they added like a building in the corner, you know. And then you get these these huge collots that have just like fifteen houses and this like one wall around them, and you're like, okay, like this, 
you, you start to figure out where it started. Um, and that's basically how these villages start. They just start from one house, one, you know, 500 years ago or something. And really, I mean, one of the things that I was always kind of suspicious of, and this was never like a hard confirmation, but I just suspected that they built them out strategically to defend, you know, like you're talking about the, the kind of worn yeah. nature of these, these compounds y'all hit. And we ran into the same stuff, you know, you get in there and it would, it would lead into another room and there'd be four rooms in a courtyard and there'd be oh, yeah. just a nice parapet along the top of the wall yeah. that was just high enough to like pop up over and lay down some scunion, you know, I was always suspicious of that. Like hop into you, the neighbor's have, courtyard. You yeah. Know? Why do you have rooftop access? Like, why do you really have rooftop access? <laughs> yeah. And why do you have stairs going up the side of your wall? Mm-hmm. Like, where do those stairs go? They don't go anywhere. You just have stairs that go up to the the side of your wall. Like dry grapes, this, man. This this is <laughs> this is a this is not a house. This is a a compound. This is a compound. This yeah. is a, this is a defensive position. And once we figured out how to use them like that, instead of actually trying to like, I don't know. Just walk around, around and shot out. Out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like we would just we'll go in early in the morning, like steal Muhammad's freaking compound for the yep. day and like chill out and like, all right, let's go. We're going to use your own compound against you. Um, so 2006 Medusa, I mean, what was your, what was your interaction like with, you know, it was, this was a huge NATO operation. You had, you had the Canadians, you guys had your role, you know, what was your interaction with like the American forces or any of the other NATO forces that were participating in that, that operation? Well, my participation was pretty dismal. Like it was mostly just in a support op. So we got to see a lot of equipment being moved forward. We supported the movement of all the uh, equipment. And then when we staged, we're basically just watching everything happen from a distance and then move in and then, uh, it wasn't until like uh, Op Bazooka where we got more involved and we got okay. attached with this platoon called the Crazy Eights. So we went right into the town with them at night. We just basically rolled right in, rolled heavy, dug in just on the outskirts after we knocked on some doors. And then we stood there. I think we, we stuck, dug in for about three days. And then one of the nights we ended up getting RPG'd and uh, we got in this huge firefight that I was on the six, so I didn't even, I was on like the opposite end of where we got hit. Oh, so like everybody the six else o'clock. Was in, yeah. the six o'clock. Yeah. So I just sat there, or like I, I was down in my uh, hole watching, and behind me everything was just opening up. There was a patch it, of that like the worst feeling? Oh, like, just, like I'm <laughs> so in the, li- I can't play, like yeah, I got I a full machine gun. And not only yeah. that, but man, I got to carry all my ammo back. Like this is <laughs> bullshit. I just got, I got off my, uh, shift in the uh, turret of the lab as well and it was mm. just poor timing but uh, everything opened up it was just insane how how much firepower got thrown in this direction mm. and I, I kept watching to see if we were going to get uh, counter ambushed if anyone was going to come behind it was at night so my NVGs were on and uh, it was pretty exciting just to be a part of that and have everything fired at this one area it didn't last very long there was much more fire that came back and then the next morning, we actually went out, myself and my uh, master corporal, to go and find if we could uh, drag back a body. And there was nothing left of the individual. They basically covered up the tracks. You could see where the person had bled, and they dragged this person away. And uh, they were pretty effective at moving their enemy out at night. Very. It's one thing we noticed as well. I mean, post-firefight, if uh, unless we killed them all. 
Like, unless it was, like, one of those things where the Apache got, like, three guys and they all, the whole cell got taken out, we never found bodies. Yeah. Um, and But what they would happen is they would magically turn up at the district center, you know, a couple hours later, be like, oh, we were, me and my friend Muhammad were walking down a path and the Americans just shot us. Like, <laughs> did they? Um, but, yeah, I mean, they're, they're very dutiful about removing their own from the battlefield. And I suspect that's partly due to the religious requirements of the timeline that a body has to be buried. And they they don't want the, the body to go sit with the Americans. And then, you know, if it sits with, or the Canadians, and if it sits with them too long, then they've missed the window to which they can um, ethically bury them. Yeah. Cause so what is it, like 24 hours or something like that? It has it's, to be done it's by really it. tight. It's, it's really tight. Dead. It's like the, by the next sunrise, I think, or something, yeah. something like that. Like something crazy. If, if they get killed at like noon, like they got to be in the ground before, you know, eight o'clock the next morning or something like that. Yeah. If you know, if you're watching and you have the correct answer to that, let us know. Yeah. Um, you know, I do remember it being very quick. It was it less is. than a day. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's probably something right about that, like sunrise or dusk or whatever. The yeah. Stigma was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, but it does it does create this very creepy uh, vibe when like you cannot find bodies on a battlefield. Yeah, like when you when you know you just fucked a whole bunch of people up and you roll into the village where they were shooting at you from and you see like you know I I didn't never see this but when you see piles of blood or whatever you're like somebody bled right here like yeah. this was where somebody I somebody got shot and like mm-hmm. there's nothing. That's I know bad. they have to be buried within three days. That's three days. Talk about three within, days. Okay. Uh, Muslim uh, burial process, but okay. Something about the body leaving the soul leaving the body. It's uh, there's a ceremony where they're wrapped in white cloth and buried right. within three days of the time of the death. Hmm. Okay, three days is a little bit more permissive than I thought. Well, it so. probably happens even faster in Afghanistan. There isn't a lot of time to... You know, yeah. it could also change with, with different sects, too. Yeah, Maybe like Shia, Sunni, or Pashtun, Wali. Yeah. Like, who knows? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there was... I mean, from our experience, uh, we didn't have a lot of dead bodies. I mean, that we dealt with personally, there was a lot of uh, casualties recorded in through throughout the tour that we were on. But our personal experience... Not a lot of bodies to bring back, and not a lot of detainees either. There was we'd get lucky sometimes with some being injured and picked up, and it was more my second tour where I dealt with a lot of that. So the first four months, we'd basically get called into just anywhere there was a detainee that was picked up. I'd fly in in a helicopter, drop down, make sure the paperwork's good to go, process them, throw them on the bird, where immediately they'd uh, freak out because they've never been on a machine. They think it's some mythical beast taking them uh, into the air and you know some would be really scared and it was just there we'd bring them back and process them their biometrics and whatnot mm. now with so, uh not to go back too far because i do want to talk about the the 2009 deployment but the you were talking about the unit the crazy eights who are the crazy eights like what what na- what nation like what's what's the because i know i know that there's some sort of um like mythos behind that unit yeah, so the Crazy Eights, uh, I think I could probably find them on here on the internet, but uh, they were a platoon with uh, Charles' company, and we attached with them for Baz Tuka, but they'd been basically a legend on our tour because of the amount of ticks that they'd gotten involved in. Their involvement with Afghanistan was, uh, I mean, in Op Medusa was night and day compared to right. my experience. So one of the members I was talking with uh, Pete Mitchell was telling me about an experience with 
basically just running through fields of marijuana and full automatic screaming at the Taliban. Yeah. Like all of them, these young kids, like 20 years old, some even less, just full out. Like it was just wild to hear their experiences of what they went through and just like the intensity of the combat. So they'd gotten a bit of a reputation because of all the stuff they'd been through and survived and, and just the heat of everything. By the time I'd met up with them, it's like they'd, it was probably about five months, five, four months between Op Medusa and Op Aztuca. September was Op Medusa. November, I think, was, so I guess it wasn't that long at all. It felt like a lifetime, but uh, it was really only a couple months. But um, their experiences between that time span was like they'd aged 10 years in uh, combat experience anyways. Sure. Mm-hmm. It'd been nonstop for them. They'd just basically been on the go since since that had happened and it'd been really rough for them losing uh the members of their their company the whole company got ravaged from the friendly fire incident a couple rpg oh yeah mm-hmm. unlucky rpg attacks yeah and uh so yeah. they were the, they were the company that got hit with the, the a10 during medusa uh, they, I believe they're around. I remember them talking about some, some of the events of that happening. I don't know if it was them directly though. I, their whole platoon, I think pretty much stayed the same, but, uh, they, they were involved. It would have been that company. I'd have to reach out to Pete and confirm that. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, they were, they were definitely engaged and it was an intense tour for them. Like it was a night and day difference. There's like a meme that I'm always reminded of where it talks about Afghanistan experiences may may differ or vary yeah. you see like on one side there's this dude stuck in like moon dust with just dust all around a sandstorm and then the right is like this uh captain smiling with tim hortons and it's just like they get the same metal completely different experiences but uh we got to attach with them that was the actually the platoon where we got hit the rpg attack that had happened we engaged and then there was this different things that kept happening to them they're just kind of became these legends and i'll share you a link there's if you look on youtube there's a link of them okay that they're yeah, interviewed send it over. on on cbc so they talk about the experiences they went through getting ready new members that came from petawawa to supplement and get on the tour but uh, they were definitely probably one of the most engaged units we'd have been involved with there's this other unit by this uh, crazy cameron I think his name was Master Corporal Gindo. He'd been hit like a number of times. And there's this one attack where he responded as a QRF and they actually, uh, they'd gotten engaged by an SVBID and hit it before it blew up. And it just like, I think it was like a napalm style uh, device that they had in this car that blew up. It went over the G-Wagon, engulfed it, just looked like it had been charred. So when we rolled up, coming out of Camp Ethan Smith for this QRF, we saw like uh, a hand on the road, unattached, we drove through the arches, half a torso had been lying right next to the G-Wagon. What had happened, I guess, was this SVB idea detonated because they were getting engaged before they hit the G-Wagon. And the dude literally like blew up, his torso te- separated in like a diagonal, went like 50 feet up in the air, bounced off a curb, lost an eyeball, is like still attached by a tendon. And I'd been walking around following my master corporal and literally this dude that had 
gotten engaged was all lit up. He's like, oh, it was all fucking crazy. Like, we just came around, we engaged you. He's like, dude, you're just stepping on his eyeball. I looked down, there's like a little tendon of the, the eyeball, this suicide bomber. I'm like, oh shit. Like, there was pieces everywhere. And like, you just didn't notice. But uh, it was just insane, the chaos that had happened from like a, I guess, 720 degree radius bits and pieces of this suicide bomber. But nobody from the... Uh, the coalition forces that actually gotten killed, which is incredible. Yeah. So we just loaded up the G wagon onto this uh, flatbed. Like I didn't, I was just doing the uh, security. We brought like QRF, you know, would have like a, a vehicle uh, asset with us, an engineering asset, medics, and then we'd be the security element as the MPs. You know, a lot of, uh, we didn't sit, do a lot of tickets. We weren't the, those kind of MPs. You we know, weren't going to give you that much. We weren't going to. We weren't going <laughs> to honk on you too bad. Yeah. I've actually never uh, done that side of the 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 job. So, as army MPs, we we aren't actually batched in the reserves. It's a completely different kind of way things are done. But uh, yeah, it is a great trade. There's a ton of things to do. There's the close protection opportunity, and I actually did apply at the end of my first tour. To do a selection for close protection. I did it in Kandahar Airfield where I had to do like the shuttle run. I had to do like a uh, fireman's carry and a bunch of stuff, which sucked in that that uh, heat and just like the, uh, I don't know what the height is anyways. It just felt really shitty because like, my cardio wasn't in top shape from that tour. I learned quickly how important cardio is. <laughs> But yeah, uh, there's a lot sure. of things you could do for sure. Like we got lucky from our tour. We got to do a little bit of everything. We got to spend some time printing auxiliary police, being attached to the Charles company, one RCR, and then doing the convoy security <laughs> and different operations getting into the city. Now, what was it? The, uh, what was the difference like when you went back in 09? Oh, you know, it was like just like the the first, you know, obviously there's a lot of differences, but kind of like what's the one thing that kind of stands out to you? The technology and how okay. the prosperity of everything. So of the Afghan people, you mean like of, yeah. the, of the locals? And then the Wi-Fi connection, like when I'd gone on my first tour, I just found out about this thing called Facebook. Then my second tour, I'm coming over with my own laptop. I got a uh, Roshan SIM card. So my my fiance, we weren't engaged at the time, but now wife or girlfriend at that time, she'd get a hold of me anytime. Like uh, when we were in lockdown, you know what would happen? They'd take away the internet right. and the ability to right. communicate. Well, the wife could but, know right away that I was okay. Like I just let her know. Like right. she could have yeah, access. They don't, to they don't me. control the Roshan. Yeah, twenty four seven. She could have access. And there's actually this one time where we lost comms going up over the mountains. Is able to radio back to Camp Nathan Smith that we were coming in to like let him know i did it through the roshan like you know it wasn't authorized but all our comms were down there was no other way sat phone didn't work so we hit well, that's through there. you know that's one thing when we were there in 17 like the roshan was part of our pace plan oh it's amazing know, like, you know you your primary is obviously you know your your secured frequency hop and then you had your you know your secured non-frequency hop then you had open communications then you had you know approved sat phones and then you had roshan <laughs> you know, yeah. it, was, it was it was one of the the approved ways. I mean, but you had to exhaust every other uh, possibility before you got there. But yeah, I mean, it was good to have something that you know, in cases of emergency, you could you could turn to. Um, yeah. You know, well, the joke was, I was a lot of people thought I wasn't even deployed because it's on Facebook so much. Like at least once a day, 
I'd uh, be on there and I wouldn't be sending updates. It's not like I was seeing what right. we were doing, where we're going. Oh, going oh, on patrol. Going out at 8 o'clock. <laughs> yeah. going but they'd see me. They could message me. So it's just like, are you really there, man? Like you spent a lot of time on this uh, Facebook thing. And then, and that's really, I think, how things have pivoted for for being so comfortable to being online all the time. That's how we launched this business. Mad Hatter Industries is an e-commerce kind of platform. We have we have the store here in my basement, but uh, really it's it's been the advantage of technology that's really helped soldiers on the battlefield, but also coming back to uh, reintegrating, finding their new mission, but connecting with other fellow veterans like we're doing here. So Tell us a little bit more about uh, what you guys are doing at Mad Hatter, man, because it's, it's a cool mission and what you guys got going on. So what, what's up there? Well, yeah, it's been uh, two years now and we got started during a mental health crisis I had been going through some issues myself and then after losing a few friends to suicide the idea of basically starting a mission for mental health came through the idea of spreading the word from uh, t-shirt designs so every design we did the first one was uh, Memento Mori which was I'm also a mason so there is some uh, spiritual connection to some of these designs Memento Mori and the reflection that one day you must die is really uh, an affirmation on the importance of making the most out of each day and then each design has a different series to it but it was meant to motivate help and inspire so when you think of Mad Hatter Industries the abbreviation or acronym of MHI actually stands for mental health initiatives but also to motivate help and inspire and that's that's kind of how it started I was always doodling things uh, overseas you know when you're in the blue rocket you see different sayings, different artwork. I just love doodling and making different designs. That's how I started putting stuff on basically like a t-shirt, like a, the first one was a Masonic thing I did for a military degree team. And then I just kinda, I really liked doing different designs and designing stuff. So then I'd draw something out and I'd commission uh, a designer from Fiverr to do something. And then it just kind of- Fiverr. <laughs> yeah. It's been great. And then I got a, now we have a team of artists that we work with. And the best thing about Instagram, like that's where we get 90% of our traffic is the ability to connect and also tell your story, but do it in an artistic way. Like our storylines always have some sort of element of what we love doing, which is outdoor adventure lifestyle. I really enjoy motorcycling. Like for me, that's how I kept sane and connected with a group of like-minded individuals. We joined a motorcycle club called the Pipe Hitters Union, which is mostly special forces. At least that's how they started out. And now it's uh, all sorts of frontline service personnel. They have a civilian uh, ability as well. I think it's 10% of membership. But uh, I just really gravitated towards trying to help people online and working on their mental resilience. But the ultimate mission for Mad Hatter Industries was for suicide prevention. <coughs> so no quarter given was their motto and that's where it came from making a promise that no way will you allow suicide as an option you'll cast that that thought off your uh, mind you'll cast it overboard and you know like you see the logo it's kind of got a pirate theme you got the cross pistols which happen to be your unit identifier that we wear on the side for our dress uniform oh yeah it's actually the same for the American uh, MPs as well yeah yeah the uh, that dueling pistol I forget the type of it but uh that was part of what the old logo 
was created is almost like a pseudonym, like a Goggins, if you were to like basically uh, aspire to and have people look up to, to make them mentally resilient and tough and go through those things. And that's where we started doing all these different mental health challenges. We started a big one last January, where it's basically 30 days of no bullshit. Like you're just working out every day no uh, junk, you're cleaning up your mind and reinforcing the right habits. And a lot of what mental health ties into is how your physical fitness is related. The two are intercorrelated. Like if I don't work out or get outside, I feel like shit. And if I'm drinking on top of that, I already feel like shit. So it's easy to get into a spiral and, and sometimes it's good. Like uh, I went through like almost a bottle of vodka the last week just there was some stuff going on it actually was very relieving but there are different ways and more uh responsible ways to get through things but also connect with people in the community and that's what we wanted to be we wanted to be that voice in the darkness that's like a, a light out there that you could reach to and have people basically just connect with you but also connect you with like-minded individuals so if we have somebody out in alaska we'd know you know Curtis is up there, connect and put them in touch and just uh, have them talk. So for me, I, I found it was really tough to trust therapists. And I don't know, maybe it's the way we operate in the army. We're used to, as soon as we get back, if people ask us for all right, we just say everything's fine. At least that's the way I did it, just so I could redeploy again or move on with things. But we get really used to just saying everything's fine when it's not. And we have a hard time trusting anybody outside of our circle that hasn't been through what we've been through. So Mad Hatter Industries is meant to be that voice or that a coffee cup on the front porch or beer in the garage, where even though you're taking the professionalized treatment, we're there to assist and supplement that. So it's something additional and it's a community. It's a community-based initiative. And really the apparel is just uh, uh, another thing like that's that's a supplement. The actual business is around uh, mental resilience and working on oneself. And how do you feel like, you know, your time in Panjway kind of contributed to your ability to kind of generate this, this mission? Well, surviving and uh, realizing just how tough you really are. I never thought I could carry uh, a C9 and keep up with the patrol as well as I could have without, <coughs> I, without, I guess, the support of those around me yelling at me to fucking keep up you know it always helps to have like that motivation encouragement but uh you prove something about yourself when you're over there that uh, you really can do something when you think you're ready or your body's telling you that you're tired sure, you actually yeah. push past that and that's really the key is to unlocking your potential your inner potential and finding that uh that passion that you love and enjoy and that's actually what we've gravitated towards is more an adventure lifestyle brand. We help people find their passion and live their adventure and get to the point of what it is that makes them truly happy before they even go down that dark hole. Like I wanna help and work with anybody. You know, it isn't just veterans as well, but help connect with people to find what it is that they love doing. And I really do enjoy looping back with uh, a lot of the people that connect with us and checking in on them to see what it is that they've found that they love doing and isn't maybe something I particularly am super fond of or have the patience for, like building a model. I would not have the patience for building this tank full of like a thousand pieces 
but I could take apart my motorcycle and go through and change the rectifier of the stator. And to me, that's therapeutic, wrenching on the bike or doing something, even just getting out on the bike by myself or with others. There are things and activities that are important for you to free your mind. And that's, I think, you know, it's a, it's an important point. Uh, and there's so many different activities out there and there's so many, you know, nonprofits and companies, you know, there's company, there's, you know, profits that'll send you on a horseback ride. There are ones that'll give people that have hand injuries, Legos to build, or they'll, you know, there's just so many different ways that you can approach mental resiliency and mental strength. Um, and like you said, free your mind. I, I really like that, that, um, phraseology. I'll make up my own word. Um, because I know there have been times when I was down, like, and this is going to sound super stupid, but like I would break out a Lego set and I'd build a Lego set. And for two hours, the only thing I'm thinking about is building a freaking, you know, Star Destroyer out of, you know, <laughs> 500 pieces of Lego. And it's to, to, to be like, I'm not worried about anything else. I'm not worried about what my phone is doing. I'm not worried about, am I, you know, going to, you know, pass my test next week or whatever. It's just like, hey, I have a short-term thing and it's you know obviously it's nowhere near as complicated as you know building a bike um or you know fixing a car but it's the same yeah it's the same process like you can simplify any step to the most simplest aspect and build from there like i don't computer programming you know or starting a business you know running a podcast it's not Um, as hard as people think they overcomplicate it but it's also something you can't just give up on it doesn't happen right away so people got to realize that it's the actual process that's the reward and that you should find the enjoyment out of. You're not going to get rich per se, just doing something and getting into it. And a lot of people are impatient. They expect results right away, but it's just like working out without that consistency. You're not going to get those results. It's not something that happens immediately. But um, when you talked, we talked about freeing the mind. That's actually one of the designs we did this summer was a road trip and Diopresso and Animi was a Latin term for free the mind and uh, open the soul essentially. But to, to basically save yourself, you got to free the mind. That's one of the designs that we had. And the concept behind a road trip wasn't just a road trip. It's just finding what you love doing and getting out there and doing it. Just like that Starship Destroyer. It's And those are the things we love supporting. Like there's different veteran initiatives where we send our proceeds to different charities. Some is for raising service dogs and we try to participate as well. We both try to donate and participate, but uh, there's so many good things going on. And that physical therapy of getting connected and doing that work is part of the benefits of those challenges. Well, Corey, we, we very much appreciate you coming on and, and sharing not only experiences, uh, but the mission of Mad Hatter, which we, we, we really believe in. And we think it's it's doing great things for you know Canadian and American vets, um, you know, by being tied into the whole the, the Panjway veteran community. Um, you know, it's it's another way for people to, you know, it's just a big network, you know, so you, you know, that's how we found out about you was was through our network. And we hope that other uh, veterans that are struggling can can find you as well. Um, if you're looking for Corey and Mad Hatter, uh, all the links are going to be in the, the episode description. You can find it at Mad Hatter Industries on Instagram, Facebook, um, and you do have a website as well, correct? Yeah, it's madhatterindustries.ca. We're on TikTok. We don't necessarily Whoa. understand how it works, but uh, we're there. <laughs> there we you got go. some videos, so <laughs> we're kind of everywhere. All right. Well, Corey, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. It's it, my pleasure to be here. Thanks, brother. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of Season 3 of the Panjway Podcast. We appreciate you sticking with us all the way to the end of the episode. 
But just one more thing before you go, please hit the like and subscribe button and make sure that you are following us on our social media.